so today's scripture reading is from Colossians 1, 15 through verse 20. Uh, and our Red Pew Bibles is going to be on page 938. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we are tremendously blessed that you would give us the resources, that you would give us the space that we can even offer it out to be hospitable to our neighbors uh, across the world. I pray that you would bless the Imani Children's Choir and what they have going on today and the rest of the week. I ask God that today, as we look at uh, these verses in Colossians one about reconciliation, that you would work in our own hearts this amazing, amazing opportunity we have to be like you in reconciling with someone who is so distant from us now. And so would you empower us, especially on this day, Father's Day, when many um, have challenges with their fathers, uh, may this day be one where that posture is towards restoration, reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've ever wondered who Jesus is and you want a quick reference, you, you, you can look at these verses that Jordan just read for us, these six verses. The historical Jesus has influenced the world through his life, his death, his ascension, his resurrection, whether people believe the events happened or not, because we can just simply look back at the historical impact of Jesus, even though he was not politically or financially powerful, and even though he only had this ministry going on for three years, and even though he was poorly educated in Galilee, that his father was a carpenter and his mother was marked with ill repute because they really don't know who his biological father was. So how could someone like that change the world? And not just change the world 2,000 years ago, but influence us to this very day. How can that be possible? So this morning, who do you say Jesus is? Not who do others say Jesus is, but who do you say Jesus is? It's a very important question because if Jesus isn't whom he claimed to be or whom the scriptures claimed him to be, declared him to be, this is all a lie. And if it's all a lie, then why bother believing a lie? Paul wrote this letter from prison, as uh, we already know. 
or, or he had somebody write it down for him as he was speaking to them. But whichever way it happened, the Holy Spirit used Paul to share these words with us. And these are very, very theologically dense words that are meant to impart to us knowledge. But it's a knowledge to transform who we are, not just to know things so that we can recite things. But it is to actually change who we are. And in verse 15, it starts with this. He is the image of the invisible God. Think about this. He's the image of the invisible God, meaning he has made God visible to us through Jesus. Now there's this argument that how can an, an invisible God be followed? Why do you guys follow an invisible God? You can't touch him, you can't talk to him, he doesn't talk back. God's not entirely invisible, is he? God was made visible in Jesus. Jesus is the divine manifestation of God in human flesh. We can see, we can know, we can understand God more fully through Jesus, just as you can any other historical figure throughout history. The fullness of God's revelation can be seen through Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, speaking of Jesus. He has made him known. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is not just a representation of God like you and I can be. We can be a representation. But he is God. We are made in the image of God, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, but our sin nature has ruined our relationship with God in that it has separated us from God. So when talking about sin, it's more than just mere morality that, that some people instantly go to. You think of sin and you just think of morality. But sin is more than behavior. It is more than thoughts. It is whatever separates you from God. But when we are made new, when we are born again in Jesus Christ, that image was ruined by sin, is now regenerated, is now restored, is now renewed, reborn. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Our ultimate aim is to be like Jesus in every aspect of our life. So do you see why God had to come in the flesh? It was for us to see. It was for us to know. It was for us to understand God more fully and to see, know, understand that sin separates us from God and that Jesus came to renew this relationship, reconcile this relationship, that sin is fatal to that relationship, and he provided this way of reconciliation. Continuing on in verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. Now, this is not saying that Jesus was created, therefore, less than God. Jesus was not created. He's eternal. Now, I can see how you can interpret this as the creation of Jesus if this phrase is just read by itself. But when we read the Bible, we have to read it in light of the rest of the letter, in, in light of the, the entire scriptures. So, we read that verse 15 has to do with purpose, but not time. That this 
title of firstborn of all creation is that. It's about a title. It's about his majesty. It's not about chronology. It's not about time. Look at Psalms chapter 89, verse 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, is that speaking of a time in terms of an order, whether, whether it's, it's whoever's born first? Or whoever is form, born first is not actually about time or chronology. It's about primacy. It's about preeminence. For example, you look at Esau and Jacob. Right? Esau and Jacob, who was born first? Wow, Sunday school answer people, good job. Esau. But who had primacy? Jacob. Right? So who was given, given the blessing of the firstborn? It was Jacob. But he wasn't firstborn chronologically. Same thing is happening with Manasseh and Ephraim in Genesis. Same thing. So first we need to look at, for Manasseh and Ephraim, let's look at this. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 9, then we'll go back to Genesis. Jeremiah 31 verse 9. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas of mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Was Ephraim the firstborn? Look at Genesis chapter 41, verse 51. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. So is this a contradiction? What is, what's going on here? Let's continue reading. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So Ephraim was born second in terms of time, in terms of chronology, but not in terms of preeminence, not in terms of primacy. Genesis 48 tells us all about this. And we'll just look at one verse there. Genesis 48, verse 20. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim... Before Manasseh. Now why are we talking about all this firstborn stuff from Genesis? Because that is the context of which Paul is writing this letter in regards to saying firstborn of all creation. And if you don't get that context, then you're going to miss the point. And you're going to think Jesus was created. Then you're going to get confused like the Jehovah Witnesses are, that Jesus was created and he's not God. So you can see in terms of heresy how easily it is to get misled by things if you don't read it in context. So obviously Jesus wasn't created and that, it, that it's not about birth order. It's not about time chronology. When Paul wrote about Jesus being firstborn, it's about title. It's about majesty. It's about primacy, preeminence. Continuing on, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. together. So here is a description of Jesus as Lord of all creation. All of creation is subject to Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Creation has suffered from sin. And it is, isn't how God originally created it to be. 
But God is in the business of renewal, of restoration, of regeneration. He restores people, and he will restore this world also. So how are we reading this? Does this make any impact in your life as you're reading this letter to the Colossians? Do we receive this as Jesus being creator, or is this just kind of like this faraway thought, this mythological belief that we're just kind of rolling with things? How many times have people come to church looking for Jesus, but they didn't find him or his disciples there? With no Jesus, there is no message, there is no power, there is no hope. It is all about Jesus. Christianity is all about Jesus, who is eternal, where creation hinges on Jesus, who can recreate, redeem. Where's the hope of recreation, restoration, redemption, if We're dependent on something, someone who is created. When creation is so broken, is it dependable to deliver us from the brokenness? It's not, right? I mean, just logically thinking through these things. Only the creator can deliver a new newness. Are we a new creation through Jesus? Are we pointing people to Jesus? Or have we pointed people to other things? Whatever that may be. And I wonder how those other things have obscured people away from Jesus. I wonder how we have distracted people from Jesus because we are so preoccupied with selfishness, worldliness, ambition, or cowardice. Is there any other agenda we have that isn't Jesus? Because if we do mislead them somewhere else, we won't be leading them down a path of reality. We won't be leading them down a path of everlasting hope, eternal faith. We'll be leading them to this dead end. Continuing on in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, Jesus is the head, and without the head, all else in life or in that person is lifeless. You know, I was an EMT, and um, there's a protocol as to say when somebody is dead. I don't remember what the other three are, or the other two. All I remember is if they've lost their head, they're dead. That's, that's the only one I remember. There's these other two things. Uh, there's three things. Before you go to a scene, you're supposed to survey the scene. I'm a bad EMT. I'll only know you're dead if your head's gone. But that was one of them, right? And Jesus is Lord of all. It is to Jesus whom the church submits. He's the head. Jesus is preeminent. Perhaps this is why some Christian church, churches, they're dying or they're irrelevant because they don't realize that they're headless. The Colossian church had issues with Jesus as the authority, and Paul made it clear to them who was the head. Jesus is your head. And you look at what Paul wrote in Colossians 2, uh, starting in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. 
from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Whenever a church severs itself from Jesus and places anything else as its head, it has the tendency to become a religious, traditionalist institution. And then the authority starts resting on its people. People who are broken when we are actually to trust Jesus, who's our head, who's our authority, not broken people who just kind of shift with time. The head directs the body, it leads the body. Jesus is the head of the church. Continuing on in verse 18, he is the beginning. Now, at first glance, this may not seem like a big thing that Paul is pointing out, but to early Christians of Colossae, who the majority of them were Jews, this is a very, very huge claim. Because when they think of the beginning of their faith, they think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, which in the children's choir was very interesting because uh, I asked what their names were in the first kid I met. He said, oh, my name's Abraham. I was like, hey, what's your name? Oh, my name's Isaac. I was like, let me guess what your name is. Jacob. And she said, no, Angela. Um, so, <laughs> so it was, but that's how they'd think. You know, they'd think, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that's, that's why the Jews took so great of an offense when, when Jesus brought up Abraham in John chapter 8. You can read that whole chapter. Many verses there about uh, where the Jews were and Jesus were, and they're having this exchange, and I'm just going to point out a few of them because it's a very long chapter. Starting in verse 53, chapter 8. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and... Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So you see how revolutionary this statement was that Paul made to the early Christians who were mostly Jews. Those Jews back in John chapter 8 wanted to kill Jesus for this, for this declaration that he's greater than Abraham. Really? I'm going to throw a rock in your head. He came before Abraham as firstborn. Again, not from time. Preeminence. Title. Majesty. Jesus is not one, one among equals amongst many gods. Not all religions are the same. He is the beginning. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, when we think of the word beginning, we tend to think of a start, like a, like a starting line, right? Like a marathon starting line that, that you draw a tape, and this is, this is the start. The Greek word used for beginning is more than just a physical starting line. It's speaking of the source of that starting line. It's speaking of the source who began the line itself. And so it's, a, it's the origin of where that starting line even began. It's who created that starting line. Beginning is not just a time thing. It's the source. It's the origin of that beginning. Why is this important? 
Because since Jesus is the source, he is the origin, he is able to recreate the line, restore the line, regenerate the line. He's the one with the authority to do that. The, the only one to whom we have hoped to be reconciled with God because he can recreate the thing. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Continuing on in verse 18. The firstborn from the dead. Paul's referencing the resurrection here. That without Jesus, there is no rebirth. There is no hope of being delivered from death. That that's only through Jesus that we have hope of life after death. That we have hope of a new life in the spirit to those who follow him right now. It's not just something we're waiting for after a physical death. There is a spiritual death to ourselves now with the assurance of a new life in the spirit now. How were we before Jesus intervened on our behalf? Take a look at Colossians chapter 2, starting verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. This is Jesus having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If Jesus is dead, we have no opportunity to be alive together with him. It is only through his resurrection that we can be alive together with God. We don't worship a dead God. Our God is a living God. Continuing on in verse 18, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is preeminent. Now, why did Paul bring us Jesus' preeminence? Because this is what's being challenged in the Colossian church. That's something more. That's, there's something in addition to Jesus that is needed. And Paul's writing, no. That's not true. Jesus is preeminent. There's no thing, there's no one else needed. There's no other authority because there's no other head. It's only Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the sun, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the beginning, the firstborn, the preeminent reconciler of all things. Let's wrap up Colossians, verses 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now there's that word again, fullness. Fullness and freedom, they are key words in Colossians because it seems that those were the things that needed to be addressed in Colossae. There seemed to be something more the Colossians were adding to the simple message of Jesus and in him crucified. There seems to be something entering in here. That what Jesus did to set us free was not quite enough. 
Now, maybe this is something some people here struggle with as well today, believing that Jesus is not quite enough. There's something else that needs to be added to it. There's something else to the gospel than Jesus and in him crucified, that there needs to be something more. And Paul is redirecting that, redirecting that false thinking, that Jesus is enough. You don't need any more supplements. He's enough. Whole foods is good. The fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus. All the fullness of God and God is enough. Jesus is the reconciler and Jesus is sufficient for all things, for, for peace by the blood of his cross, for hope in our futures. And now you notice that God is the one who initiated reconciliation. He did it. God initiated peace. We all know we live in a broken world that is full of war. It's full of dissonance. It's, it's full of contention. We don't make it any better. We're not making it better. We try. People have hearts to try to do these things, but we can see from thousands and thousands of years of human history, we are just not good at it. And ever since Genesis, we've been trying to take things into our own hands, those of us who have been created. And we've always thought we know better than God. We've always thought that. It's what got us into trouble in the first place. We know better. And we're still doing the same thing today. Why does any political or social movement not work for the long haul? I'll tell you the reason why. People are involved. That's why they don't work. Broken people break things. And we think we have all these great ideas on how to change the world, and sometimes we do. But the problem is, is when we go pursuing those things without God, we eventually break them. It doesn't work without God. And we've proven that over and over and over again for thousands of years. It doesn't work without him. When we ignore Jesus and in him crucified, we're still eternally separated from God. So all these temporary breakthroughs we have in experiencing freedom and in experiencing peace, they remain temporary without Jesus Christ. Jesus initiated reconciliation between God and people. But there are people who don't want it. He initiated love. He initiated peace. He initiated reconciliation. But there are some people who don't want it. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. He initiated Romans chapter 5, verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He initiated. We didn't initiate reconciliation, peace, love with God. Throughout history, we've waged war against God. There's not peace without God's initiation. Our part is to receive God's peace offering, to accept that gift of peace, grace, 
And Jesus, all the while, is our advocate. He's advocating for us when no one else can. Because he's creator. He's preeminent. How can someone advocate for you and me to God if they are in the same place of darkness as you and me? If we're all separated from God, how can we advocate for each other to be reconciled to God when we're already separated from God? So Jesus does it. Only Jesus can transform lives for eternity. He reconciles the world to himself. He initiated that. Now we all have our own stubborn wills. We all have our impure hearts. We all have our broken souls. Where will we turn with all of that? Each other? How's that turned out? How's that turned out for the world? For all human history? It's not a good record. We're not good at that. True reconciliation is done by the true mediator who reconciles. And beyond Jesus, there's nobody else that can do that. And when he does do that, we, when we accept it, it does make it possible for us to extend peace, love, and reconciliation to others. It's not saying that Christians are perfect at this because we are by far not. We're pretty bad too. Jesus extended reconciliation, but not everyone accepts it. And so when we extend peace, when we extend reconciliation, when we extend those things, we can only do our part. We are only empowered to do our part. But as you all know, not everyone reciprocates, do they? So forgiveness on our end is always possible. The reconciliation part, not so much. Because that takes the other party. Will you receive Jesus today because he has actually initiated and offered peace, freedom to you? Now this is the reciprocation part. The forgiveness part is offered to you. But will you take it to then be empowered to be vessels of peace, of hope to this broken world? I'm really glad that uh, we're talking about reconciliation today on Father's Day. I, for me, this is a personal thing that is, runs deep for me. Because um, as many of you know, I was estranged from my dad for eight years. Didn't talk to him. Um, I called him this morning to wish him a happy Father's Day, but um, he must be playing a game on his phone or something. He didn't answer. And I, so I texted him. Um, but that wouldn't have happened uh, many years ago. We, we didn't work things out. And I need to let you know that it's been one of... If, if I was being asked what was the most tremendous thing that God has ever done in your life I would tell them this story that he reconciled me to someone I hate hated I don't hate him anymore that I would have seen that as impossible there's no way that I would have forgiven that guy 
for what he did to my family and things like that. Like, I, there's no way. That would be like the greatest thing that God's ever done, that he's been able to give me the gift of reconciliation, that, that it was actually practiced and done. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for a gift of reconciliation. And I pray, God, that you would help us to do that. There are relationships that we have that we desire to be harmonious and good. We realize it's not always possible that two parties are involved in that. But, Lord, would you shape our heart to be like yours. And I pray that today, Lord, is a day for someone who is harboring a bitterness or a resentment within themselves that is just occupying their mind and their spirit and their heart. And they're not free from it. And they won't be free from it without forgiveness to let that go. So, Lord, would you empower your children to be able to do that? And, Lord, I pray specifically for people who are distant from you, who don't know you, whom you have offered the gift of forgiveness. You've given enough grace for us to make a decision. So, God, would today be that day? In Jesus' name, amen.